Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the world of Percy Jackson. In this episode we're going to read chapters 36 to 37 and in the previous episode we read chapters 34 to 35. And in the previous episode we furthered explored Annabeth as she continued to uh, continue on her journey to find the Athena Parthenos. Uh, she hit some challenges here and there but uh, she, uh, she was be able to get through all of them and we're going to continue seeing her on her journey as she continues to find the Athena Parthenos using the Mark of Athena and hopefully she'll be able to end uh, the curse that had been getting every single Athena kid for a very long time. So now we're going to read chapter 35, 36, Annabeth. The tunnel ran straight and smooth, but after her fall, Annabeth decided to take no chances. She used the wall for support and tapped the floor in front of her with her crutch to make sure there were no traps. As she walked, the sickly sweet smell got stronger and her set her nerves on edge. The sound of running water faded behind her, and in its place came a dry chorus of whispers like a million tiny voices. They seemed to be coming from inside the walls, and they were getting louder. Annabeth tried to speed up, but she couldn't go much faster without losing her balance or drawing her broken angle. She hobbled onward, convinced that something was following her. That small voice were the small voices were massing together, getting closer. She touched the wall, and her hand came back covered in cobwebs. She yelped, then cursed herself for making a sound. It's only a web, she she told herself. But that didn't stop the roaring in her ears. She'd expected spiders. She knew what was ahead. The weaver, her ladyship. The voice in the dark. But the webs made her realize how close she was. Her hand trembled as she wiped it on the stones. What had she been thinking? She couldn't do this quest alone. Too late, she told herself. Just keep going. She made her way down the corridor, one painful step at a time. The whispering sounds got louder behind her until they sounded like millions of dried leaves swirling in the wind. The cobwebs became thicker, filling the tunnel. Soon she was pushing them out of her face, ripping through gauzy curtains that covered her like silly string. Her heart wanted to break out of her chest and run. She stumbled ahead more recklessly, trying to ignore the pain in her ankle. Finally, the corridor ended in a doorway filled waist-high with old lumber. It looked as if someone had tried to barricade the opening that didn't bode well. But Annabeth used her crutch to push away the boards as best she could. She crawled over the remaining pile, getting a few dozen splinters in her free hand. On the other side of the barricade was a chamber the size of a basketball court. The floor was done in Roman mosaics. The remains of tapestries tapestries hung from the walls. Two unlit torches sat in wall scones on either side of the doorway, both covered in cobwebs. At the far end of the room, the mark of Athena burned over another doorway. Unfortunately, between Annabeth and that exit, the floor was bisected by a chasm 50 feet across. Spanning the pit were two parallel wooden beams, too far apart for both feet, but each too narrow to walk on unless Annabeth was an acrobat, which she wasn't and didn't have a broken ankle, which she did. The corridor she'd come from was filled with hissing noises. Cobwebs trembled and danced as the first of the spiders appeared. No larger than gumdrops, but plump and black, skittering over the walls and floor. What kind of spiders? Annabeth has no idea. She only knew they were coming for her, and she only had seconds to figure out a plan. Annabeth wanted to sob. She wanted someone, anyone, to be here for her. She wanted Leo with his fire skills, or Jason with his lightning, or Hazel to collapse the tunnel. Most of all, 
She wanted Percy. She always felt braver when Percy was with her. I am not going to die here, she told herself. I am going to see Percy again. The first spiders were almost at the door. Behind them came the bulk of the army, a black sea of creepy crawlies. Ameth hobbled to one of the wall scones, sconces and snatched up the torch. The end was coated in pitch for easy lightning, lighting. Her fingers felt like lead, but she rummaged through her backpack and found the matches. She struck one and set the torch ablaze. She thrust it into the barricade. The old dry wood caught immediately. Flames leaped to the cobwebs and roared down the corridor in a flash fire, roasting spiders by the thousands. Ammit stepped back from her bonfire. She bought herself some time, but she doubted that she killed all the spiders. They would regroup and swarm again as soon as the fire died. She stepped to the edge of the chasm. She shined her light into the pit, but she couldn't see the bottom. Jumping in would be suicide. She could try to cross one of the bar hand, bar, bar's hand, uh, hand over hand, but she didn't trust her arm strength, and she didn't see how she would be able to haul herself up with a full backpack and a broken ankle when she reached the other side. She crouched and studied the beams. Each had a set of iron eye hooks along the inside, set at one-foot intervals. Maybe the rails had been the sides of a bridge and the middle planks had been removed or destroyed. But eye hooks? Those weren't for supporting planks. More like. She glanced at the walls. The same kind of hooks had been used to hang the shredded tapestries. She realized the beams weren't meant as a bridge. They were some kind of loom. Emma threw her flaming torch to the other side of the chasm. She had no faith her plan would work, but she pulled all the string out of her backpack and began weaving between the beams, stringing a cat's cradle pattern, a cat's cradle pattern, back and forth from eye hook to eye hook, doubling and tripling the line. Her hands moved with blazing speed. She stopped thinking about the task and just did it, looping and tying off lines, slowly extending her woven net over the pit. She forgot the pain in her leg and the fiery barricade guttering out behind her. She inched over the chasm. The weaving held her weight. Before she knew it, she was halfway across. How had she learned to do this? It's Athena, she told herself. My mother's skill with useful crafts. Weaving had never seemed particularly useful to Annabeth. Until now. She glanced behind her. The barricade fire was dying. A few spiders crawled in around the edges of the doorway. Desperately, she continued weaving, and finally she made it across. She snatched up the torch and thrust it into her woven bridge. Flames raced along the string, even the beams caught fire as they'd been pre-soaked in oil. For a moment, the bridge burned in a clear pattern, a fiery row of identical owls. Had Annabeth really woven them into the string, or was it some kind of magic? She didn't know, but as the spiders began to cross, the beams crumbled and collapsed into the pit. Ameth held her breath. She didn't see any reason why the spiders couldn't reach her by climbing the walls or the ceiling. If they started to do that, she'd have to run for it, and she was pretty sure she couldn't move fast enough. For some reason, the spiders didn't follow. They massed at the edge of the pit, a seething black carpet of creepiness. Then they dispersed, flooding back into the burned corridor, almost as if Annabeth was no longer interesting. Or I passed the test, she said out loud. Her torch sputtered out, leaving her with the only light of her dagger. She realized that she'd left her makeshift crutch on the other side of the chasm. She felt exhausted and out of tricks, but her mind was clear. Her panic seemed to have burned up along with that woven bridge. The weaver, she thought. I must be close. At least I know what's ahead. She made her way down the next corridor, hopping to keep the weight off her bad foot. She didn't have far to go. After 20 feet, the tunnel opened into a cavern as large as a cathedral. 
so majestic that Annabeth had trouble processing everything she saw. She guessed that this was the room from Percy's dream, but it wasn't dark. Bronze braziers of magical light, like the gods used on Mount Olympus, glowed around the circumference of the room. Interspersed with gorgeous tapestries, the stone floor was webbed with fissures like a sheet of ice. The ceiling was so high it was lost in the gloom and layers upon layers of spiderwebs. Strands of silk as thick as pillars ran from the ceiling all over the room, anchoring the walls and the floor like the cables of a suspension bridge. Webs also surrounded the centerpiece of the shrine, which was so intimidating that Annabeth had trouble raising her eyes to look at it. Looming over her was a 40-foot-tall statue of Athena, with luminous ivory skin and a dress of gold. In her outstretched hand, Athena held a statue of Nike, the winged victory goddess, a statue that looked tiny from here but was probably as tall as a real person. Athena's other hand rested on a shield as big as a billboard, with a sculpted snake peeking out from behind, as if Athena was protecting it. The goddess's face was serene and kindly, and it looked like Athena. Annabeth had seen many statues that didn't resemble her mom at all, but this giant version, made thousands of years ago, made her think that the artist, artist must have met Athena in person. He had captured her. He had captured her perfectly. Athena Parthenos, Annabeth murmured. It's really here. All her life, she had wanted to visit the Parthenon. Now she was seeing the main attraction that used to be there. And she was the first child of Athena to do so in millennia. She realized her mouth was hanging open. She forced herself to swallow. Ammoth could, could have stood all there looking at the statue, but she had only accomplished half her mission. She had found the Athena Parthenos. Now how could she rescue it from this cavern? Strands of web covered it like a gauze pav pavilion. Annabeth suspected that without those webs, the statue would have fallen through that weakened floor long ago. As she stepped into the room, she could see that the cracks below were so wide she could have lost her foot in them. Beneath the cracks, she saw nothing but empty darkness. A chill washed over her. Where was the guardian? How could Annabeth free the statue without cla collapsing the floor? She couldn't very well shove the Athena Parthenos down the corridor that she'd come from. She scanned the chamber, hoping to see something that might help. Her eyes wandered over the tapestries, which were heart-wrenchingly beautiful. One showed a pastoral scene so three-dimensional it could have been a window. Another tapestry showed the gods battling the giants, and it saw a landscape of the underworld. Next to it was the skyline of modern Rome, and the tapestry to her left. She caught her breath. It was a portrait of two demigods kissing underwater. Ambeth and Percy, the day their friends had thrown them into the canoe lake at camp, it was so lifelike that she wondered if the weaver had been there, lurking in the lake with a waterproof camera. How is that possible? She murmured. Above her in the gloom, a voice spoke. For ages I've known that you would come, my sweet. Amit shuddered. Suddenly she was seven years old again, hiding under her covers, waiting for the spiders to attack her in the night. The voice sounded just as Percy had described, an angry buzz in multiple tones, female but not human. In the webs above the statue, something moved, something dark and large. I've seen you in my dreams, the voice said sickly, sweet and evil, like the smell in the corridors. I had to make sure you were worthy, the only child of Athena clever enough to pass my tests and reach this place alive. Indeed, you are her most talented child. This will make your death so much more painful to my old enemy when you fail utterly. 
The pain in Annabeth's ankle was nothing compared to the icy acid now filling her veins. She wanted to run, she wanted to plead for mercy, but she couldn't show weakness. Not now. You're Arachne, she called out, the weaver who was turned into a spider. The figure descended, becoming clearer and more horrible. Cursed by your mother, she said, scorned by all and made into a hideous thing. Because I was the better weaver. But you lost the contest, Annabeth said. That's the story written by the winner, cried Arachne. Look on my work. See for yourself. Annabeth didn't have to. The tapestries were the best she'd ever seen. Better than the witch Circe's work. And yes, even better than some weaving she'd seen on Mount Olympus. She'd wondered if her mother truly had lost. If she'd hidden Arachne away and rewritten the truth. But right now, it didn't matter. You've been guarding the statue since the ancient times, Annabeth guessed. But it doesn't belong here. I'm taking it back. <laughs> Arachne said. Even Annabeth had to admit her threat sounded ridiculous. How could one girl in a bubble wrap ankle cast remove this huge statue from its underground chamber? I'm afraid you would have to defeat me first, my sweet, Arachne said. And alas, that is impossible. The creature appeared from the curtains of webbing, and Annabeth realized that her quest was hopeless. She was about to die. Arachne had the body of a giant black widow, with a hairy red hourglass mark on the underside of her abdomen, and a pair of oozing spinnerets. Her eight, spindly, her eight spindly legs were lined with curved barbs as big as Annabeth's dagger. If the spider came any closer, sweet stench alone would have been enough to make Annabeth faint. But the most horrible part was her misshapen face. She might have once been a beautiful woman. Now black mandibles protruded from her mouth like tusks. Her other teeth had grown into thin white needles. Fine dark whiskers dotted her cheeks. Her eyes were largeless. Large, lidless, and pure black, with two smaller eyes sticking out of her temples. The creature made a violent rip, rip, rip sound that might have been laughter. Now I will feast on you, my sweet, Arachne said. But do not fear, I will make a beautiful tapestry depicting your death. And that's the end of chapter 36. That certainly was... A very fascinating way to end the chapter. I certainly thought there were going to be way much more, way many more obstacles to finding the Athena Parthenos. But I guess defeating Arachne is probably more, more harder than just going through a bunch of just smaller tasks. Um, so it's going to be definitely interesting to see how Annabeth is going to combat Arachne with the fact that Arachne is a huge spider bigger than probably probably bigger than Annabeth so it's going to be really really fascinating just to see how she's going to be able to handle this and how she's going to just tackle everything in general um but I still can't wait because I have I, I have no doubt no doubt I have faith in Annabeth that she's going to be able to uh defeat Arachne and she's going to be able to retrieve that Athena Parthenos even with that bubble wrap ankle cast around her leg so that was certainly a fascinating chapter. Um, after this break, we're going to read chapter 37. And now it's going to be from Leo's perspective. So now we're going to see what the rest... We're now going to see from the perspectives of what the rest of the crew members have been doing while, while uh, Annabeth has been battling 
a giant spider in order to retrieve a 40-foot-tall Athena statue. So yeah, after the break, uh, don't go anywhere. Maybe grab a drink, maybe grab some snacks, um, sit back down, and just get ready to listen right after the break. So right after the break, we're going to read Chapter 37, Leo. And we're back from the ads, and now we're going to read Chapter 37, Leo. Leo wished he wasn't so good. Really, sometimes it was just embarrassing. If he hadn't had such an eye for mechanical stuff, they might have never found the secret chute, gotten lost in the underground, and been attacked by metal dudes. But he just couldn't help himself. Part of it was Hazel's fault. For a girl with super underground senses, she wasn't much good in Rome. She kept leading them around and around the city, getting dizzy and doubling back. Sorry, she said. It's just... There's so much underground here, so many layers, it's overwhelming. Like standing in the middle of an orchestra and trying to concentrate on a single instrument. I'm going deaf. As a result, they got a tour of Rome. Frank seemed happy to plod along like a big sheepdog. Hmm, Leo wondered if he could turn into one of those, or even better, a horse that Leo could ride. But Leo started to get impatient. His feet were sore, the day was sunny and hot, and the streets were choked with tourists. The forum was okay, but it was mostly ruins overgrown with bushes and trees. It took a lot of imagination to see it as the bustling center of ancient Rome. Leo could only manage it because he'd seen New Rome in California. They passed big churches, freestanding arches, clothing stores, and fast food restaurants. One statue of some ancient Roman dude seemed to be pointing to a nearby McDonald's. On the wider streets, the car traffic was absolutely nuts. Man, Leo thought people in Houston drove crazy, but they spent most of their time weaving through small alleys, coming across fountains and little cafes where Leo was not allowed to rest. I never thought I'd get to see Rome, Hazel said. When I was alive, I mean the first time Mussolini was in charge, we were at war. Mussolini? Leo frowned. Wasn't he, like, BFS with Hitler? Hazel stared at him like he was an alien. BFFs? Never mind. I'd love to see the Trevi Fountain, she said. There's a fountain on every block, Leo grumbled. Or the Spanish Steps, Hazel said. Why would you come to Italy to see Spanish Steps? Leo asked. That's like going to China for Mexican food, isn't it? You're hopeless, Hazel complained. (laughs) So I've been told. She turned to Frank and grabbed his hand as if Leo had ceased to exist. Come on, I think we should go this way. Frank gave Leo a confused smile, like he couldn't decide whether to gloat or to thank Leo for being a doofus. But he cheerfully let Hazel drag him along. After walking forever, Hazel stopped in front of a church, or at least Leo assumed it was a church. The main section had a big domed roof. The entrance had a triangular roof, type typical Roman columns and an inscription across the top. M. Agrippa, something or the other. Latin for get a grip? Leo speculated. This is our best bet. Hazel sounded more certain than she had all day. There should be a secret passage somewhere inside. Tour groups milled around the steps. Guides held up colored placards with different numbers and lectured in dozens of languages like they were playing some kind of international bingo. Leo listened to the Spanish tour guide for a few seconds and then he reported to his friends. This is the Pantheon. It was originally built by Marcus Agrippa as a temple to the gods. After it burned down, Emperor Hadrian rebuilt it. 
And it's been standing for 2,000 years. It's one of the best preserved Roman buildings in the world. Frank and Hazel stared at him. How did you know that? Hazel asked. <laughs> I'm naturally brilliant. Centaur poop, Frank said. Eve's dropped on the tour group. Leo grinned. Maybe. Come on, let's go find that secret passage. I hope this place has air conditioning. Of course, no AC. On the bright side, there were no lines and no admission fees, so they muscled their way past the tour groups and walked on in. The interior was pretty impressive, considering it had been constructed 2,000 years ago, and the marble floor was patterned with squares and circles like a Roman tic-tac-toe game. The main space was one huge chamber with a circular rotunda, sort of like a capitol building back in the States. Lining the walls were different shrines and statues and tombs and stuff. But the real eye-catcher was the dome overhead. All the light in the building came from one circular opening right at the top. A beam of sunlight slanted into the rotunda and glowed on the floor like Zeus was up there with a magnifying glass trying to fry puny humans. Leo was no architect like Annabeth, but he could appreciate the engineering. The Romans had made the dome out of big stone panels, but they'd hollowed out each panel in a squared-within-square pattern. It looked cool. Leo figured it also made the dome lighter and easier support. He didn't mention that to his friends. He doubted they would care, but if Annabeth were here, she would have spent the whole day talking about it. Thinking about that made Ilya wonder how she was doing on her Mark of Athena expedition. Leo never thought he'd feel this way, but he was worried about that scary blonde girl. Hazel stopped in the middle of the room and turned in a circle. This is amazing. In the old days, the children of Vulcan would come here in secret to consecrate demigod weapons. This is where Imperial Gold was enchanted. Leo wondered how that worked. He imagined a bunch of demigods in dark robes trying to quietly roll a scorpion ballista through the front doors. But we're not here because of that, he guessed. No, Hazel said. There's an entrance, a tunnel that will lead us toward Nico. I can sense it close by, I'm just not sure where. Frank grunted. If this building is 2,000 years old, it makes sense there could be some kind of secret passage left over there from the Roman days. That's when Leo made his mistake of simply being too good. He scanned the temple's interior, thinking, If I were designing a secret passage, where would I put it? He could sometimes figure out how a machine worked by putting his hand on it. He learned how to fly a helicopter that way. He fixed Festus the dragon that way, before Festus crashed and burned. Once he'd even re reprogrammed the electronic billboards in Times Square to read, All the love ladies love Leo. Accidentally, of course. Now he tried to sense the workings of this ancient building. He turned toward a red marble altar-looking thing with the statue of the Virgin Mary on the top. Over there, he said. He marched confidently to the shrine. It was shaped sort of, sort of like a fireplace, with an arched ray recess at the bottom. The mantle was inscribed with a name, like a tomb. The passage is around here, he said. This guy's final resting place is in the way. Raphael somebody? Famous painter, I think, Hazel said. Leo shrugged. He had a, crow, a cousin named Raphael, and he didn't think much of the name. He wondered if he could produce a stick of dynamite from his tool belt and do a little discreet demolition, but he figured the caretakers of this place probably wouldn't approve. Hold on. Leo looked around to make sure they weren't being watched. Most of the tour groups were gawking at the dome, but one trio made Leo uneasy. About 50 feet away, some overweight middle-aged dudes with American accents were conversing loudly, complaining to each other about the heat. They looked like manatees stuffed with beach clothes, sandals, walking shorts, touristy t-shirts, and floppy hats. 
Their legs were big and pasty and covered with spider veins. The guys acted extremely bored, and Leo wondered why they were hanging around. They weren't watching him, and Leo wasn't sure why they made him nervous. Maybe he just didn't like manatees. Eh, forget them, Leo told himself. He slipped around the side of the tomb. He ran his hand down the back of a Roman column all the way to the base. Right at the bottom, a series of lines had been etched into the marble. Roman numerals. Heh, <laughs> Leo said. Not very elegant, but effective. What is? Frank asked. The combination for a lock. He felt around the back of a column some more and discovered a square hole about the size of an electrical socket. The lock face itself has been ripped out, probably vandalized sometime in the last few centuries, but I should be able to control the mechanism inside if I can... Leo placed his hand on the marble floor. He could sense some old bronze gears under the surface of the stone. Regular bronze would have corroded and become unusable long ago, but these were celestial bronze. The handiwork of a demigod. With a little willpower, Leo urged them to move, using the Roman numerals to guide him. The cylinders turned. Click, click, click. Then, click, click. On the floor next to the wall, one section of marble tile slid under another, revealing a dark square opening barely large enough to wiggle through. <sighs> Romans must have been so small. Leo looked at Frank appraisingly. He only had to change into something mm, thinner to get through here. That's not nice, Hazel, sh Hazel chided. What? Just saying. Don't worry about it, Frank mumbled. We should go get the others before we explore. That's what Piper said. They're halfway across the city, Leo reminded him. Besides, uh, I'm not sure I can close this hatch again. The gears are pretty old. Great, Frank said. How do we know it's safe down there? Hazel knelt. She put her hand over the opening as if checking the temperature. There's nothing alive, at least not for several hundred feet. The tunnel slants down, then levels out and goes south, more or less. I don't sense any traps. How can you tell all that? Leo asked. She shrugged. Same way you can pick locks on marble columns, I guess. I'm glad you're not, rob not into robbing banks. Oh, bank vaults, Leo said. Never thought about that. Forget I said anything, Hazel said. Look, it's not three o'clock yet. We can at least do a little exploring, try to pinpoint Nico's location before we contact the others. You two stay here until I call for you. I want to check things out. Make sure the tunnel is structurally sound. I'll be able to tell more once I'm underground. Frank scowled. We can't let you go by yourself. You could get hurt. Frank, I can take care of myself, she said. Underground is my specialty. It's safest for all of us if I go first. Unless Frank wants to turn into a mole, Leo suggested, or a prairie dog. Those things are awesome. Shut up, Frank mumbled. Or a badger. Frank jabbed a finger at Leo's face. Valdis, I swear. Both of you be quiet. Hazel scolded. I'll be back soon. Give me ten minutes. If you don't hear from me by then, never mind. I'll be fine. Just try not to kill each other while I'm down there. She dropped down the hole. Leo and Frank blocked her view from view as best they could. They stood shoulder to shoulder trying to look casual, like it was completely natural for two teenage guys to hang around Raphael's tomb. Tour groups came and went, most ignored Leo and Frank. A few people glanced at them apprehensively and kept walking. Maybe the tourists thought they would ask for tips. For some reason, Leo could unnerve people when he grinned. The three American manatees were still hanging out in the middle of the room. One of them wore a t-shirt that said Roma, as if he'd forget what city he was in if he didn't wear it. Every once in a while, he would glance over at Leo and Frank like he found their presence uh, distasteful. Something about that dude bothered Leo. He wished Hazel would hurry up. She talked to me earlier, Frank said abruptly. Hazel told me you figured about my lifeline. 
Leo stirred. He almost forgot. He almost forgot and Frank was standing next to him. Your lifeline? Oh! The burning stick, right? Leo resisted the urge to set his hand ablaze and yelled, "What?" The idea was sort of funny, but he wasn't that cruel. Look, man, he said. It's cool. I never do anything to put you in danger. We're on the same team. Frank fiddled with the Centurion badge. I always knew fire could kill me, but since my grandmother's mansion burned down in Vancouver, it seems a lot more real. Leo nodded. He felt sympathy for Frank, but the guy didn't make it easy when he talked about his family mansion. Sort of like saying, Oh, man, I crashed my Lamborghini and waiting for people to say, Oh, you poor baby. Of course Leo didn't tell him that. Your grandmother. Did did she die in that fire? You didn't say. I, I don't know. She was sick and pretty old. She said she would die in her own time, in her own way, but I think she made it out of the fire. Saw this bird flying up from the flames. Leo thought about that. So your whole family has the shape-changing thing? I guess, Frank said. My mom did. Grandmother thought that's what got her killed in Afghanistan in the war. Mom tried to help some of her buddies, and I don't know what exactly what happened. There was a firebomb. Leo winced with sympathy. So we both lost our moms to fire. He hadn't been planning on it, but he told Frank the whole story of the night at the workshop when Gaia had appeared to him, and his mother had died. Frank's eyes got watery. I never like it when people tell me, sorry about your mom. It never feels genuine, Leo agreed. But I'm sorry about your mom. <laughs> Thanks. No sign of Hazel. The American tourist was still milling around the Pantheon. They seemed to be circling closer like they were trying to sneak up on Raphael's tomb without it noticing. Back at Camp Jupiter, Frank said, our cabin, Lar, Reticulous, told me I have more power than most demigods being a son of Mars. Plus, having the shape-changing ability from my mom's side. He said, that's why my life is tied to a burning stick. It's such a huge weakness that kind of balances things out. Leo remembered his conversation with Nemesis, the revenge goddess at the Great Salt Lake. She said something similar about wanting the scales to balance. Good luck is a sham. True success requires sacrifice. Her fortune cookies were still in Leo's tool belt, waiting to be opened. Soon you will face a problem you cannot solve, though I could help you for a price. Leo wished he could pluck that memory out of his head and shove it in his tool belt. It was taking too much space. We've all got weaknesses, he said. Me, for instance, I'm tragically funny and good-looking. Frank snorted. You might have weaknesses, but your life doesn't depend on a piece of firewood. No, Leo admitted. He started thinking. If Frank's problem were his problem, how could he solve it? Almost every design flaw could be fixed. I wonder. He looked across the room and faltered. The three American tourists were coming their way. No more circling or sneaking. They were making a straight line for Raphael's tomb, and all three were glaring at Leo. Uh, Frank? Leo asked. Has it been ten minutes yet? Frank followed his gaze. The Americans, the Americans' faces were angry and confused, like they were sleepwalking through a very annoying nightmare. Leo Valdez called the guy in the Roma shirt. His voice, his voice had changed. It was hollow and metallic. He spoke English as if it was a second language. We meet again. All three tourists blinked and their eyes turned solid gold. Frank yelped, I don't want! The manatees clenched their beefy fists. Normally, Leo wouldn't have worried about getting mur murdered by overweight guys in floppy hats, but he suspected the Eidolons were dangerous even in those bodies, especially since the spirits wouldn't care whether their host survived or not.
They can't fit down the hole, Theo said. Right, Frank said. Underground is sounding really good. He turned into a snake and slithered over the edge. Leo jumped in after him while the spirits began to wave above, wail above. Valdez! Kill Valdez! And that's the end of chapter 37. Well, that was also quite the uh, a fascinating chapter as well. So now we got to see Leo's side as well. Uh, Leo, Frank, Hazel, they're now searching for Nico and searching and hopefully being able to rescue him. And I think I'm really... I think it's the fact that after Hazel went exploring the underground for a bit, I think the fact that Leo and Frank were able to finally be able to, I guess, find each other on a good footing because um, beforehand, you know, Frank had this doubt with Leo and everything being like, oh my God, is he trying to steal my girlfriend or something? But I think as they continue to work together, especially since they're in a group of a group together now with Hazel, they're, I think they're, they're, the whole group, the group as a whole is starting to more connect and bond together. And I think this is where Leo is, I think, starting to feel more confident about himself. I think throughout the whole chapter, throughout ever since we've been int- introduced him, we feel like it's, it, it, we're shown that he's like a little bit insecure that he always has this thought at the back of his head that nobody really likes him and everybody's just talking to him just to pity him and i think that insecurity kind of grew over time but as he's getting to know these group of people as he's getting to know get to know frank and hazel and um other people and percy and other demigods he's starting to i think that insecurity is also starting to diminish. Uh, it's probably still going to be there at the back of his head because I don't think it goes away that easily, but I think it's starting to diminish a little, starting to have a little less, le- less impact on him than it used to before. And I think being able to prove that prophecy wrong, that Leo will always be alone, I think that really brought some confidence, some self-confidence to Leo. So I'm really proud of him for that character development that's been that's shown in leo and you know i think with that really deep meaningful conversation that frank and leo had about their moms i think that that kind of connected them on a deeper deeper level because they both went through something that you know was traumatic and i think being able to share it with someone else, I think that really helped them not only build their connection with each other more, but also help them also with their own trauma and be able to, I guess, work it out with and have a support system in a way. So this was certainly a great chapter. I think we really got a more deeper look into those relationships and between the demigods and how those are starting to shift now so next week we'll read chapters 39 to 38 to 39 hopefully we'll see more of what's happening as leo frank and hazel continue to explore hopefully we'll see what what's going to happen with annabeth as she fights arachne and lots of questions lots of answers probably in the next few chapters so i hope you guys enjoyed this episode if you guys want to show some show some extra support 
totally optional but uh the link to my patreon is located in the description of my podcast um but i really appreciate you guys for listening to this podcast this episode and if you haven't checked out the previous ones i highly suggest you go check those out as well um but other than that i hope you guys have enjoyed this episode as much as i have enjoyed reading the chapters and until next week stay safe and stay out of boredom